We would like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello everyone, my name's Ioana. And I'm Zara. You're listening to I Used to Play Piano, the podcast for lovers of music, doers of music and listeners of music. Now, we're pretty excited to for today's episode because we're going to be looking or taking a deep, a closer look at the wonderful music of Igor Stravinsky and the craziness of the Rite of Spring. Yes, I'm really excited for this. So we should mention that we chose to do this one. So we're still in lockdown here in Melbourne mm. um, as we're recording this. And I think we've just released our latest episode, episode 10, and we thought, you know what, let's try and get one out within a month of that, you know, <laughs> let's just see whether we can challenge ourselves that, yes, to actually um, do two episodes in quick succession. Yeah. And we thought, what can we do that was going to be, I think we thought this would be easy for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember how we came up with this idea. Well, Dan, so Dan, our sound man, he is, as some of you will know, he is a composer as well. And he has all this amazing composy software stuff. Mm. Um, that's the technical name for it. So he so, can actually, you know, transcribe. And he also loves doing transcriptions. So he loves transcriptions and he likes to, to try and recreate orchestral sounds in these composition programs. And so he said to us when he was editing our last episode, oh, if you want me to um, record any of those bits that you guys talk about so you don't have to just sing them <laughs> I can make it sound like an orchestra and that way you know we're not infringing on anyone's copyright and it works really nicely so we thought you know what that's a good good for his brain good workout for old Dan and you guys don't have to hear us sing anymore <laughs> yeah. I personally I liked our um Tchaikovsky singing but anyway yeah I agree <laughs> not for everyone clearly well. I think everyone who listens probably knows us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we thought, well, you know, Rite of Spring will be an interesting one for him to try and transcribe and trans... Um, what's the word? Not transpose. To write it out and recreate it in his program. So, and we thought, you know, it's a piece that we know quite a lot about. It sounds, it's got a fun story to it. So why not just take a crack at it? Mm. But then when we started looking at it, Man, <laughs> it's really, there's just so much out there. Like, it's big. Yeah. yeah. And Stravinsky is big as well. Like when I yeah. first started doing the research about his life, I thought, oh, it's not that much. But actually, when I really got into it, there's a lot about him that I'll talk mm. about too. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's start off in our usual way. Sarah, what have you been up to with music lately? Have you been playing anything, listening to anything? Well, kind of. <laughs> that was a sigh. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because I was listening to our most recent episode, which we recorded back in, I think it was March, and yeah, it's it August fun. now. <laughs> and I remember in that episode I was saying how being in lockdown had really, you know, going back to playing some piano. Yes, you really learning Brahms. That's right, I was. I haven't done any since then, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, so right after we recorded that, which is why it took so long for us to get it out there, 
um, I got extremely busy with some having to move all my work online and taking, I was fortunate, really fortunate to take on a bit of extra work. Um, So that was really lucky, but it did mean that I haven't touched the piano in quite a long time, which is a bit sad. Um, That is sad. Yeah, but I'll get back to it. That's okay. Good. Um, Hopefully now we're starting to level out a little bit and get used to this new new way of living yes it feels like we're going to be in it for a while it does doesn't it actually while we're recording this i believe there might be some announcements about stage four restrictions coming in place yeah i think we're missing out on the the big announcement about whatever's happening next Mm. to record this which you know i'd rather do this than listen to that it's less depressing (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, so I haven't been playing all that much other than the playing music that I do for work, which is yeah. good actually. And that really sustains me in a lot of ways too. Yeah. Um, and learning one thing that's been really fun actually, shout out to the Musical Memories Choir that I f- helped to facilitate. Yeah. Because um, we've moved online and doing sessions over Zoom, which is not ideal for mm. a choir. <laughs> if anyone's tried to sing over Zoom, it's pretty terrible, but <laughs> it's better than nothing and it's kept us all together. But we've been trying to spice things up a bit. So we've been having some different themed weeks. Yeah. So we had a 60s music week. We had a 70s music week. We had an Australiana <laughs> type week. And what was the one? We, oh, we had a last time we had a, a theme of like songs with different colours in them. Um, which was really fun. and That's cool. I actually think there might be more songs that have colours in them than not because there were so many. Um, so like so, talking, the, the mention of a word colour or? Yeah, um, anything, anything. Like we try to keep the theme really loose so it doesn't get a bit repetitive, but, you know, right. you, you could have t- colour in the title, a colour in, mentioned in the song. Right. Um, you know, anything really. We try to be a bit creative with it, but that's given me an exciting opportunity to learn some new music. Um, mostly on guitar and just to learn some new songs that I either didn't know or um, maybe songs that I'd forgotten about. Like we did, um, we did a, when we did like Australiana week, we, what was that? You know, that song, I've been everywhere, man. Yeah. <laughs> we tried to learn that so that we could all sing it, but it's so fast. It's impossible. <laughs> that's um, so that's been fun. So I have been, you know, being able to keep doing music. I'm fortunate to have a job where I get to do music yeah. as part of it. And Music therapy has been really nice at this time as well because it's one of the few things that we can continue in an online format. And it seems to be, I think just, it's really shown me how important music is and and the work that we can do with music is for people at this time, you know, it's it's a way for us to stay connected, whereas other types of therapies might be a bit more difficult online or, you know, we can, it's, there's nothing wrong with coming online and having a jam. It's good fun. Even no. though the sound quality is terrible and you can't sing <laughs> That's in okay, unison. Though. But yeah, it's fine. At the end of the day, people yeah. are probably just enjoying it more than anything. And exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. I'm glad that you get to sort of um, engage with music on a daily basis. Yeah, it's pretty, good pretty great. Pretty great. I can't complain. It's fantastic. No, <laughs> How about you? What have you been up to? Well, I've actually gone back to regular piano lessons. I'm doing the weekly piano lesson thing. Yay. Oh my gosh. That's dedication. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So a little while ago, earlier this year, I had thought about potentially maybe going back to study music performance and undertaking a career in that because I was missing it a lot. So then I um, got in touch with my old piano teacher and because um, he's always been very honest with me when it comes <laughs> to that and just, just to have a chat about it. And, yeah, he basically sat me down and was like, 
well, it's not impossible, but just be prepared that, you know, your end goal is probably 15 years away, not wow, <laughs> not five. He goes, there's some elements in your playing fundamentally that are just um, are wrong and holding you back. And so, like, if, if we were to go down that path, I'd, like, pull your p- playing apart entirely and then put you back together. So he's like, just think about it. You're obviously, you know, you'd be giving up a, a good job and, you know, 15 years is a long time for uncertainty, which is fair point. And so, yeah, I, um, I did. I had a good think about it for a good week. And um, then, yeah, just decided because he was also saying, like, you know, if you do a Masters of Music performance at Melbourne, then it's really competitive to get in. They don't take that many people. You might not get it. So that was that was pretty big thing to think about as well. Um, uh, yeah, but then I was just was like, well, I, I would still like to be able to improve my playing even if it's not something I do professionally. And um, yeah, so I was like, are you willing to uh, apply that same method of teaching even if I'm not doing it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he goes, yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's what we've been doing since March or April, I think was the first lesson. I've been having weekly lessons with him and he's basically sent me some easy easy work um <laughs> it's a quotation mark on easy yeah. um something that i wouldn't sort of struggle with to learn the notes too much yeah but are really challenging from like a musical and interpretation sort of point of view hmm. and it's just really changed the way i approach playing the piano and approach my practice sessions and i can hear the improvements as well so it's cool um yeah so been doing that on a regular That's basis great. like it's it's hard to find the time and the motivation after a full day of work yeah and I guess because I'm working at home I can I try to practice earlier in the day but then things just come up and you have to just work and <laughs> yeah work. So it just makes it hard um but yeah it has been fun I have been enjoying it that's great can you can you like share like a bit of what that's like, like being broken apart at music. Yeah. You know, like what, what's kind of one thing that you've had to relearn? Um, just sort of reading the music from a, a harmonic point of view. Like the first thing that I played for him was the Mozart piano sonata in C major. The one that, dun, 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 dun. that was my rehab piece when I was in piano rehab. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I played it like the first two movements to him and the first thing he said to me was like, okay, so what's the most important part, the most important note in the first two bars? Hmm. And I was like, oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so like, you know, make, I'd make a guess at it. And he goes, okay, why? And it's just like, oh. Is it the B? Is it the B? Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's the G. Uh. Uh, and that's because in the left hand, the Alberti bass goes to the dominant. Isn't that? I'm sure that goes to a B there, right? Yeah, that's in the left hand. No, the I'm right talking hand. about the right hand melody. Is da, it? Da, I have to get da, the da, da, Okay, sure. Oh, Let's no, go yeah. over the B. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, it was that sort of thinking because obviously Mozart as well hasn't got any annotations in terms of dynamics or anything. Yeah. It's all just yeah. you have to read it from the music, which I found was really, really interesting. But it was just those really hard questions of, where you just have to really look at the music to see what it's telling you to do yeah beyond the notes and it's just that's something that well that's sort of something that I'm learning from scratch because I don't ever 
remember being taught that way. Yeah, that's such a good point, isn't it? I feel like, I don't know what it's like in other countries or other education systems, but definitely where we've learned, it's kind of just like, learn as it's kind of, it's the focus is on like just learning a bunch. And I think you've spoken about it before though. So maybe that's not even true either. Cause you've talked about like, we only learn like four pieces a year in uni. Yeah. But, but I think it's also because there's no end goal inside. Like we're yeah. not trained to become professional musicians. Here. Yeah, that's true. We're just, you know, trained how to play. Yeah. And, but, but there's no always... sort of like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think if you, if you were to have that end goal, insight constantly then you would learn and you would approach it differently totally like I I think every time I learn a piece it was just like let's just get through this piece like yeah yeah like that the idea of breaking it down harmonically like sometimes I would do that for memory purposes Mm. but really like thinking yeah I don't think I would have thought so much about the musical implications that much it was kind of Mm. just like you're on your own with that so it's yeah yeah, really interesting so it's really cool it's actually really refreshing I each week is just like for the full hour of my lesson, I'm just like, oh, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but I always really enjoy them and um, I can sort of hear myself and feel myself getting better and improving. That's great. So good. Yeah, I mean, there's not too much. Technically, there's a few things, like my hands are often raised too high um, and then I don't produce a nice enough sound and so just those things and, you know, your, your two-note slurs and how to make the second one softer just like learning how to do that with your hand which has like changed the whole game I'll tell you that much (laughs) yeah that's so cool there's something like I found when I was doing my my rehab which obviously I I was doing it for a different purpose I was just doing it so that I could play a note without being in pain Mm. rather than like worrying too much about the musicality at the time but even little things like just the amount of control that I could have over a note changed when I was really focusing on my physicality and not just yeah panicking to play the notes as quick as possible I guess yeah. or as, you know like just the the idea that I can actually control the keys yeah I know and they're not it's... just buttons on the piano was I mean that was for some reason that was really mind-blowing to me and that's I yeah. think the thing that really separates like the good pianists mm. from the great pianists like yeah. having that control because I mean I look at Dan play what I remember mm. back in the day when you know mm. I'd watch him perform in a workshop and I was always so envious that he seemed like he was in complete control of what he was doing with the notes. He may not have been, but it, he he seemed to sort of mm. come across that way. And that's sort of the thing that I've always just, I feel like I've been lacking a lot of. And I guess part of it is confidence. Part of it is even acknowledging that you have some sort of talent and just sort of um, or ability to play mm. at least, and then transferring that into your actual playing. And then part of it is also just like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to draw a nice sound out of the piano, but it just sounds stark rather than warm or, you know. Yeah. Anyway. That's so cool. No, good on you for like committing to it and just being brave enough to do it because yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And I yeah, totally get you. Like it's so hard after a day of work, you're just like, oh, I don't want to sit at the piano. But yeah, some days yeah. it's good. Some days it's just like, oh, this is exactly what I needed to just sort of process what happened at work (laughs) yeah that's the thing and that's the thing that I love about the fact that I 
like at the start when in the last episode when I was talking about just going and playing that Chopin Nocturne and just feeling so grounded in it, like mm. that state, of, and we talk about this in, in music therapy as well, like the state of flow that you can get into when you make music, you're not thinking about other things. Mm. Well, you might be thinking about other things, but you're really just in the moment and feeling yeah. it. Yeah. And that's so important. You know, I think that's such a a powerful thing to be able to do. And I feel really fortunate that even though I my you know I can't play up to the standard that I used to, I can still have that opportunity to go and muck around with music in that yeah. sense. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It's cool. great. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention as well, which is not really, I don't know what's happening with it right at this moment, um, but one thing that I've been really enjoying is the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall. Have you seen any shows from them? Yeah, I did. I actually watched one last weekend. Oh, great. Who did you watch? Uh, so it's actually my teacher, Christian Chong, and he oh, was cool. playing in a chamber ensemble. Um, and they did, what did they do? They did a Harden piano trio. And then there was a um, violin quartet with a flautist. I can't remember what they played. I'd have to look it up. And also then they did the Schumann piano quartet, which was amazing. Nice. Um, that was really cool. So yeah, it was, it was a really nice concert actually. I thought that was the first time I'd watched anything. It was really cool. Um, it, I liked it that it was live. So yeah. it wasn't um, like, there's been a few things where I've watched things back you know, just a recording of them. So even though it was recorded live, I watched it back. Whereas this was, I think, I don't know. I don't think you can watch them back. Can you? You just have to. Uh, I don't know that you can. Time. Some yeah. of them, I think you can. I think there was one that was like a, new, a premiere of a new work and they left that one up for a week or two after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really liked that you kind of had to log in and you could kind of, it was almost like being at a concert, you know? Um, yeah. Because I think you can get a bit immune to the seeing things on a screen. Totally. Um, so I watched one with Katie Noonan a oh, while yeah. ago. That was pretty cool. Um, and then I also watched one with my former piano teacher, Sonia Lischitz, um, mm. who's amazing. And that was, oh my gosh, I wish I should bring it up because I can't remember the specific thing, but it was, she was playing um, the, the Seasons by Tchaikovsky. Cool. Um, but she was also reading poetry in between which oh, was really wow. cool. And then I think from memory, she also had like another composer, I want to say Crumb. I could be misremembering that from something else I've seen her do. Um, that was like a response to the seasons. So it was okay. the way it was set up was really cool. And yeah. the poetry um, she was reading in, I think it was in Russian. Um, so she's Ukrainian. And the, yeah, you could just really, it was a really exciting performance because it wasn't just hearing the piano music, but also having a bit of drama into it as well, which Sonia, like I've seen her perform so many times and she's such an amazing performer and always brings like so much passion and just interesting stuff. Like she's very mm. pushing boundaries a lot with the work that she puts out. So I'm, that was really, really exciting to be able to yeah, watch. that sounds cool. Yeah. Um, Check it out if you haven't already, the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall. There's, yes. I think there's something on most nights. Um, Tickets are $24 for the most of them and $20 goes towards the artists, $4, goes to, $4 goes to administrative costs. Um, and then they've got a separate series that I think is funded by Michael Aquilina, Aquina, I can't remember his name, but he basically donated um, 100 grand or something to wow. the um, Melbourne Digital Concert Hall. And so they're a little bit more expensive, but still very, very accessible. So definitely worth it for what you're getting. I think it's... It's amazing. It's, it's great. And, you know, they've, 
I think they've raised or they've been not raised because people are paying for a product, I guess, um, over $500,000 Yeah, that's gone to over 250 musicians, yeah. over 120 recitals in the four-month period, which yeah. is, you know, I think it's one thing that we don't really realise how hard it's been on performing artists and yeah. not just them but people in the industry as well, not the non-performers, people who yeah. work in in the arts it's yeah. really challenging and it, a lot of them have been forgotten by government handouts and government support packages they haven't been relevant yeah. or people haven't been eligible for them so it's you know to see an initiative like this supporting performers is just you know fantastic really yeah. and it's great to see as well like some of these um performers are from the melbourne symphony orchestra and it's really nice to hear them playing different rep in chamber ensembles it's it's like an opportunity to sort of really see and hear what these musicians are like and how they play. It's it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a bit it's special. Yeah, yeah, Very intimate too. Oh, and another thing that I got to see was some performances from Isol Aid. So, have you heard of Isol Aid? No, I haven't. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I can't work out how to say it, but I <laughs> obviously like I Isol Isol, as in isolation. Um, right. Isol Aid. Yep. Um, and it's an Instagram account mm-hmm. um, and they, it's a festival and it's been ongoing. So I've seen heaps of stuff over the last um, few months and so many people um, have been able to perform on it. But uh, my friends in Music Yared, which are an Ethiopian music ensemble, they performed mm-hmm. on it, which was really cool. And yeah, it's just really um, nice because it's just live streamed to the Instagram page. So you can watch and you can also comment on Instagram as it goes. So people were like commenting and chatting and then the members of the band who went on stage were, well, stage, it was in someone's living room <laughs> as they were yeah. recording. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, but the members of the band who, were, who weren't playing were responding to the chats and it was just, oh, yeah, it was cool. really, really cool. So I'd recommend following that account. So it's I-S-O-L-A-I-D Festival on Instagram. So at Aid. Um yeah, really, really cool. And you can donate to them and the donations go to the artists who perform there as well, which is great. So that's been, um, yeah, something else Ooh. that's been keeping me entertained on a weekend as well. Hmm. That's great. Um, well, shall we get stuck into the main event? I think we shall. Um, all right. Um, so, Zara, you're going to start off and talk about the man himself, Igor Stravinsky. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and then you'll get stuck into the um, the the work that we're looking at today, which mm. is the right of the right of string, <laughs> right of spring. Off to a good start. <laughs> um, okay, so I do want to give a bit of a forewarning. My pronunciation of Russian locations and names has not improved since our Tchaikovsky episode. So apologies in advance. I did try and look things up, um, but. I've probably forgotten things already since I looked them up. So we'll do, I'll do the best that I can. Great. So, um, so let's start off with a little bit of background about Stravinsky. So he was born, obviously Russian. Um, he was born in a town of, I hope I say this right, Oranienbaum, which is in the Gulf of Finland. So right kind of um, where that little bit between Russia and Finland connects. Mm-hmm. And it's not too far from St. Petersburg, I believe. So he was born on the 17th of June, 1882, to a father who was a bass opera singer 
and his mother who was a pianist mm. and which is kind of unusual I think because most often when we're talking about composers in their backgrounds it's usually their family weren't musicians and they kind of didn't like that they were getting into music so this is a bit of a different slightly different yeah. different experience yeah kind um, of it's one or the other really yeah, I guess. Well, what, what else is there? <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> intermediate. Um, he had three brothers, and look, there wasn't a whole lot about information about his early years. Um, he started music at quite a young age. Um, I think when he was eight years old, he went to see Tchaikovsky's ballet Sleeping Beauty, which really kind of fostered in him an interest in ballet, which as you know, from the Rite of Spring plays a really important part in his career as a composer later on. Um, I found a quote, so, oh, I forgot to mention my sources for this. So let me just pause and I'll, I'll tell you where I got all this information on, from <laughs> other than Wikipedia. So I did get quite a bit of it from Wikipedia. Good old Wikipedia. Um, but you know, that it is quite comprehensive. Yeah, um, it is. I got some of this uh, information from um, The Essential Canon of Classical Music by, edited, I think, by David Duval. Um, the International Encyclopedia of First World War, um, an article by Hartmut Flood, which was a really interesting one, um, which gave me a lot of information about his early career. Um, an article on Stravinsky from the website Theremin Vox, um, which didn't have a singular author ascribed to it. Um, an article from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra called The Discovery of a Lifetime Funeral Song, Stravinsky's Salute to Rimsky-Korsakov. And that was written by Philip Husha. I think that's how you say his name. Um, an article um, called Here are Six Awesome and Controversial Facts on Stravinsky, the greatest composer of the 20th century um, <laughs> by Angelica Frey and an article about Stravinsky from the Holocaust Music Organization website um, by Abe McKee and an article by Joan Evans in the, music, the Journal of American Musicological, Musicological Society um, called Stravinsky's Music in Hitler, Germany. So that was a bunch of references and of course good old Wikipedia as well. <laughs> so one of the quotes that I couldn't find a source for other than Wikipedia was Stravinsky talking about his childhood saying that he was quite lonely as a student and he said I never came across anyone who had any real attraction for me. <laughs> that was a little sad. Yeah. <laughs> poor, poor little baby Stravinsky. <laughs> um, when he was 15, he was getting quite good at piano and he created a piano reduction of a string quartet by Alexander Glazunov, who apparently didn't like the reduction and said that Stravinsky was pretty much unmusical. So that's oh, a bit harsh, damn. Um, but he wasn't discouraged and he was really keen to do music. What I did think was an interesting tie back to our Tchaikovsky episode, though, was even though Stravinsky's parents were both musicians, they still didn't want him to become a musician and encouraged him to go and study law, mm. which I thought was interesting. Um, so even if you have a musician parent, you're probably still going to be discouraged from picking it as a career, which really, can we say, is that such a bad <laughs> choice? I don't know. It's challenging. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Stravinsky claims to have gone to very few lectures um, because lectures weren't compulsory, which, you know, again, I can relate to that in my undergrad. 
love a good non-compulsory lecture. Um, so when Stravinsky was um, studying at St. Petersburg University, he's around 20 years old, um, he met a young man named Vladimir. And Vladimir happened to be the youngest son of none other than Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, oh. who you will remember from our episode on Tchaikovsky as one of the most influential Russian musicians of the time and a member of the Five or the Mighty Handful. The Mighty Hand! Yes. <laughs> so Rimsky-Korsakov Sr., I guess. Um, <laughs> at the time, he, as I said, he was a leading composer and he was professor at the St. Petersburg Conservatory of Music. And Stravinsky, and this is a bit of a theme throughout his life, so he was a bit of a hustler, always looking for ways to progress his career and, um, you know, as you tend to have to be as a musician. Um, so he thought it would be good to buddy up with Vladimir um, so that he could meet his father and hopefully um, learn from him. So he managed to somehow get um, the opportunity to go and stay at the Rimsky-Korsakov household over summer in 1902. Mm. And... That was in, I think they actually went to Heidelberg in Germany for that. And at that time, you know, Stravinsky got to know Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov quite well and expressed an interest in learning from him and wanting to ch change out of law and go into music. And this was quite interesting, actually. Um, and I couldn't find a lot of information on it, unfortunately. Um, so Rimsky-Korsakov suggested to Stravinsky that he shouldn't go into the con or study music formally, but that he should just have private lessons with him in theory and learn to be a composer that way. Now, I thought that was quite interesting. And like the cynic in me was like, well, maybe he just wanted money and <laughs> private tuition pays better than the uni. I don't know. Um, <laughs> possible, but that's, I've got no information, no, um, evidence to support that theory. It's just a speculation. <laughs> but what I did think was interesting is if we think back to the episode we talked where we talked about the five and Tchaikovsky and how the mighty handful were kind of anti-establishment when it came to music education. So they were saying, I think I mentioned in the last episode that um, they didn't believe in formal music education and they were really wanting people to capture the essence of Russian music rather than having this big imposed Western um, musical education. Mm. And I did a little bit of looking up around Rimsky-Korsakov and apparently some of his other students have talked about this as well. Um, apparently he felt that students that were particularly talented didn't need formal instruction that you would get in a university. So mm. maybe some students who needed a bit more support, they should go to uni and they'd be fine. But he felt that students that were particularly talented, he should just give them the basics. So teaching um, things like harmony and counterpoint theory, getting them to learn a little bit about the forms of composition, so understanding other compositions and just learning about refining their technique on the instrument, particularly piano, mm. and doing exercises in orchestration and composition. So just kind of like a really well-rounded like exploration of music rather than a do this assignment here, this is the way it should be type thing, no parallel fifths, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, good old parallel fifths. Um, but yeah, so this kind of, um, that's a joke for anyone who's done a basic music theory course at university. You should never write in parallel fifths. Or um, Amy B. Yeah, or Amy B, um, our music education system here. It's um, sacrilegious apparently. Um, but yeah, so once these... Um, 
like once that students had like these kind of private lessons on this, that that's all they need to do to become a composer. They shouldn't have to go and do a course on it essentially is what mm. his philosophy was. Um, so he started privately um, teaching Stravinsky and Stravinsky's law studies were kind of slacking off a little bit, but he kind of got a bit lucky actually, <laughs> I guess you could call it lucky, in the university had to be closed for two months in 1905 because of the, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Russian Bloody Sunday. Mm. Yeah, so that was where a bunch of workers protested and marched on the Winter Palace and the Tsar. Um, and it's, you know, everything that I read is very much a Tsar apologist type thing, like saying, oh, he didn't really know how to lead and it was all the police's fault or it's all Rasputin's fault and this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so I don't want to get too much into the politics of it, but basically the police and army opened fire on a bunch of protesters and many people were killed. Um, so then wow. that that set apart a mini revolution, which kind of preempted the later Russia, Re- Russian revolution. Um, and I believe took a bit of power from the the monarchy, I guess, and distributed it to having more of a political influence with the government and things like that. So, again, not a Russian historian. Yeah. Don't take my word for that. But as a result, because of this conflict and upheaval, the university was closed, so he didn't have to sit any exams. <laughs> like that's kind of the dream as a student, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, you know, other than obviously the horrible death and unnecessary. Um, pain and suffering of people but you know getting out of exams is always fun so yeah that's true <laughs> and it was good for Stravinsky because it meant that he could kind of say well I don't need to do law anymore and he could just kind of get more intensely focused on music um so he never I think he it said he got a half course diploma for law which I don't really understand what that means but it's like a kind of so it's just I like guess, a credit for what you've done credit yeah credit for what you've done or maybe like a mini a half degree or something but yeah he didn't right. didn't finish his law degree and he just went and started learning really intensely from Risky Korsakov which right. I never knew actually so that was pretty cool Mm. Well, um, it's even funny, like, you know, if, if, given that Rimsky-Korsakov was part of the five and believed that music education, you, you know, shouldn't be a thing, yet he was earning an income by being a professor at a conservatorium. Mm, I mean, but, we all have to earn money, Joanna. <laughs> yeah, but like if you're, anyway. <laughs> uh, the struggle is will. Is Will? The struggle, struggle is real. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the name of this episode. Will? The struggle is real. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I understand. I think a lot of um, music teachers can relate to yes. having to kind of um, oh, definitely. take on jobs that are less than ideal in order to support your more creative out- output. Yes, that's very true. Now, so Rimsky-Korsakov passed away in 1908 um and so around the time of bloody sunday i think it was um stravinsky's father had already passed away of cancer so rimsky korsakov not only was his great musical mentor but it become like a father figure to him mm-hmm. and when he died obviously stravinsky was really devastated and he composed a piece called funeral song have you heard about this no so this is amazing okay so he wrote this in 1908 i think it was premiered in 1909 Mm -hmm. um and it was considered lost until 2015. whoa yeah very recently so apparently um 
as I'll talk about in a bit, Stravinsky left Russia and the the, the score for it went missing. Mm-hmm. And he, throughout his lifetime, he talked about it a bit. He said that he could kind of remember bits of it. Um, he couldn't remember the orchestration. He knew that, like, he thought, I think he said he thought it was like a, a wind orchestration, but actually it was full orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, he couldn't, he said he couldn't replicate it in his head. He just had no idea how it went, but he knew it was good. And he, he actually felt that it was his best work right. um, before Fire, Firebird, which we'll talk about. Oh, uh, yeah. Too. So he said it was like kind of his, the thing he was most happy about. He said, I remember this piece as my best work, the best of my works before the Firebird and the most advanced in chromatic harmony. The orchestral parts must have been preserved in one of the St. Petersburg Orchestra libraries. I wish someone in Leningrad would look for the parts, for I would be curious myself to see what I was composing just before the Firebird. So quite an interesting thing from a, a musical history perspective as well. Yeah. Like This is like, you know, Firebird is his first big hit and yeah. this is coming right before it. And also, obviously, it was quite an emotional piece because it was mm. about the death of his mentor. Um, so in 2015, the St. Petersburg Con was being renovated and apparently people had been looking for this for years, but they never found it. And, you know, I can only imagine how um, difficult that must be looking through hundreds of years worth of music in a library, you know, sifting through all that. So in 2015, while it was being renovated, this musicologist and Stravinsky specialist, Natalia Braganskaya, I hope I pronounced that name right, she found it and was able to, she found copies of the score, the orchestral parts, so she was able to piece it together. And it was actually given its first performance since 1909 on the 2nd of December 2016. Wow. And it was performed in the same hall where it was played, the, the only other time it was played, in the St. Petersburg Marinsky Theatre. That's quite um, a find to have to your name. It's so cool, isn't it? <laughs> like it's just, can you imagine like just going through a bunch of what you might assume is just, you know, rubbish and finding, yeah. you know, finding this long lost piece that has such a significant, not just the fact that it's a Stravinsky and whatever, but also that it was, a funeral piece for his friend who's also yeah. a really important figure in Russian music. So that must have been pretty special. Mm. Um, so it was filmed, that performance, and I will put a link to that as well on our Facebook page because it's pretty cool. Like it's, yeah, I'd love it's to see exciting. it. Exciting. Yeah. Um, so after that, he composed two more pieces, um, Scherzo Fantastique and The Fireworks, um, and they were both performed in St. Petersburg. And this is kind of like a big turning point in Stravinsky's career. This was his big break because in the audience at the performance of these two pieces was a man named Sergei Diaghilev. Have you yeah, heard of him? Yeah, yes. I have. Yes. I so, mentioned him briefly. Oh, good. <laughs> so I always thought he was a choreographer because I knew he was the um, owner of the Ballet Russes. Yeah. Um, but actually he's not. He was just, a um, again, another hustler. He was someone who... Um, was a big music promoter essentially Mm. um, and put together all these things. So um, I think actually he'd also himself wanted to be a musician and Rimsky-Korsakov had told him not to bother. (laughs) Funnily enough, and he, I think he was, I I read somewhere that it said that he was going to go and prove Rimsky-Korsakov wrong and go and study music anyway, but then he realised he could make money and have a fulfilling career in promoting the arts as well. Right. So he created the Ballet Russes, and which of course is a Russian ballet troupe, particularly known for performing a lot in Paris. Mm. And he wanted to bring, you know, kind of again, just linking back, there's a lot of um, links to our last episode on Tchaikovsky here, 
linking back to that notion of wanting to promote Russian music to the rest of the world and kind of this nationalistic identity, Mm. um, you know, so he wanted to put together a Russian opera and ballet program for Paris. And he'd initially asked um, another composer, Anatoly Lyadov, I'm sorry about these names, everyone. Much respect. I tried. Um, He was, um, yeah, he offered it to this other composer who said, oh, yeah, I'll get back to you in a year. And um, Stravinsky had been doing a little bit of work for Diaghilev already in some orchestration um, for small things, and he'd done it at quite short notice. So he asked Stravinsky, who was only 28 at the time, um, you know, can you do, I need a, a ballet based on the fairy tale of the firebird um really quickly and Stravinsky just did it <laughs> and you know nice. pulled it out of the hat and it was premiered in 1910 on 25th of June in Paris and it basically made Stravinsky an overnight sensation like he was literally um the next big thing because yeah. of his ballet so it was pretty big um Diaghilev commissioned him to do more so he wrote the second ballet which is Petrushka which is one of my favorite ones it's a really fun ballet um it wasn't as popular as Firebird, but it did. It was really successful as well. And obviously the Russian, um, sorry, the Ballet Russes were really popular. So mm. it was really kind of a good career move for Stravinsky. And then obviously the big one that we'll be talking or you'll be talking a lot about later, The Rite of Spring, mm. um, was the third ballet that he did for Diaghilev as well. Um, and I won't talk about that because you're going to talk all about the fun things that happened with that one. <laughs> well, I'll just put a little note on that. Mm. Apparently um, Diaghilev had already had some ideas about what he, what the next, the third um, ballet was going to be. And then Stravinsky kind of just admitted that he had been working on something with um, Nicholas Ryrick, who helped him create the Rite of the Spring. And then Diaghilev apparently was quite upset that he'd gone behind his back and started working on something else. But then after hearing certain parts of it was just like, yeah, okay, go for it. (laughs) Cool. I can't wait to hear more about this. (laughs) Great. So that brings us up to 1913. And then um, obviously a little thing called World War I started. (laughs) So things got a bit tough and... Stravinsky was doing some conducting um, in aid of the Red Cross and he'd moved to Switzerland with his family at the time. So he was married and had a couple of kids and they started to move to to Switzerland, um, which I'll I'll talk a little bit about in a minute. But um, I guess something that's quite important at this time in his career is that he was really struggling financially um, Mm. because... Russia or and then the following the USSR once the revolution took place didn't adhere to the Bern Convention which is a convention about the protection of literary and artistic works that basically is an international agreement governing copyright so rather than having copyright in any particular country it's something that across countries um, people agree on in terms of copyright Mm -hmm. and even though that was kind of like a national policy that they didn't adhere to it um, Stravinsky also accused Diaghilev of not doing the proper paperwork and stuff. So it kind of meant that he couldn't collect any royalties for the performances of the Firebird or um, Petrushka or the Rite of Spring. Like he was really having trouble getting paid for the royalties of performances. Damn. Even though Diaghilev was off traipsing around South America 
with the ballet russes and things like that. So yeah. yeah, that was quite a bit rough. And he, a lot of this, you know, this is kind of where you start to see his entrepreneurial ship coming through. Um, so he, he had been moving between, um, France, Russia and Switzerland a bit just for work. Um, and he, he ended up in 1914 moving into Switzerland, um, partly because of the war, like it was really difficult to move around at the time. Mm. because he'd had illness as a child, I believe, or as a young young adult, he was exempt from service. He didn't have to, to go in and fight. But one of his brothers did die on the front lines, which is quite sad mm. um, and it impacted him quite a bit. Um, and then I think this, this period in Switzerland was really important for a number of reasons and also the war. And it's just really interesting looking at the impact of war on art and history and music and things like that and just thinking about the consequences of of how music and genres and stuff have evolved influenced by things like war which I think is just really fascinating so he was already kind of struggling for money and it meant that he had to seek out some um you know uh what do you call it? like uh patrons yeah. to create music for. So there was one gentleman who was a clarinet player that he wrote a clarinet piece for and things like that. So that in itself, the financial incentive was impacting him. Apparently before the war, he was already kind of musically inclined to to be thinking about reducing um, orchestration, I guess, like making things a little bit lighter, um, just changing up, going from like these big pre-war luscious symphonies and stuff and really thinking about making things smaller. But then because of the war, he actually had to do that. Like he didn't have a choice because there was not, a, not as many musicians around. There wasn't enough equipment. You know, instruments were scarce because of, um, you know, manufacturing challenges and stuff because of the war. So in this time, um, there were two pieces that he wrote that really kind of demonstrate that. Um, the Le, Le Noches, I think it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. And Renard, which is, I think, the more famous of the two are both examples of that where the orchestration and the way that he's composed have been influenced by the circumstances of what was available. So that's interesting mm-hmm. um, in some form. I don't, I can't speak to how much, but it just kind of gives you an idea of how things like war might change, um, you know, culture, which is interesting. Mm. And also it was quite significant while he was living in Switzerland. He became friends with a Swiss conductor named Ernest Ansemet, and this, person um had been to the u.s and brought stravinsky a gift of ragtime dances which were really influential on stravinsky as well so he um was listening to all these different um yeah ragtime music which is really different from everything that he'd been listening to already Mm. and it really um kind of influenced the way that he composed as well and thinking about the different um stylistic possibilities as well too so this period in switzerland was quite influential um on his composing and also i should say as well the fact that he was homesick because he wasn't living in russia was also another influence and kind of brought back those folklore elements into his composition as well Mm. so i thought that was just a little bit of interesting insight into the way that the world can shape a composer and how someone might be responding to external happenings in their in their art as well Mm. one thing 
it's really weird actually. I kept coming across because I was reading lots of different articles, some like journal articles and others just kind of, you know, casual things on online. And I could not find a source for this whatsoever. And it seemed like the same sentence had been copied and pasted into several articles. But apparently while he was in Switzerland, he was living in a hotel, which I couldn't verify. And he felt uncomfortable composing because people could hear him in the hotel. It was like, which, you know, I mean, you remember what it's like going, um, studying in uni and going into a practice room and then trying to practice, but then you hear the virtuoso in the next room and you're like, oh, I can't do it. Um, So again, can relate. Um, But one, one thing that kept coming up in all of these articles was apparently the solution was someone made him like a little space in a chicken coop where he did some um composing during that wow time. i know and i cannot verify that so it could just be something that someone random has written and it's just been copy um, and pasted yeah it's quirky yeah it's definitely and this the same sentence was copy and pasted in a bunch of different articles and i could not find a source but i do like the idea of one of the greatest composers of the 20th century composing in a chicken coop <laughs> that makes me laugh so i thought i would include it um all right i realize this is going on for quite a while but i think it's there's some really important things to, to mention here about Stravinsky. Um, so in the 1920s, he moved to France and he was having a bit of trouble finding somewhere to live. I think he was still having some financial difficulties. So uh, he found a friend in none other than Coco Chanel, <laughs> the designer. And so she actually let the family stay with her in her mansion. Um, and apparently there's like a rumor that she gave a significant amount of money to Diaghilev to bring the Ballet Russes to France to perform the Rite of Spring so that he could get some money from it Mm. um, and royalties and stuff. So there's kind of rumours about an affair between the two of them. Mm. You know, it's a bit, uh, I don't really care about that stuff. Um, But he certainly did have a lot of affairs um, throughout his life, um, notably with a woman named Vera. So his wife, um, Catherine, um, apparently had tuberculosis and... They said that after she was ill, their kind of physical relationship ended and she was aware of the affair that he'd been having this whole time and was, I don't know, it's so funny the way music, I think I said this last time, like the way that musicologists write about composers' personal lives, it just really irks me. But Yeah, it's very gossipy. It's so gossipy and it said like, you know, she was resigned to it but she, you know, she took it stoically but with disdain or something like that. And I'm like, come on, guys. <laughs> like I'm sure she was bloody pissed. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, especially if you you know, you've been unwell and you're part, anyway, I'm not going to go on a rant about this here, but, um, yeah, so she eventually passed away from tuberculosis and after, this is after about a 20 year period of living in France. Mm. Um, and so did his eldest daughter as well, which was quite sad and his mother as well. So this was around 1939 and as we know, that's kind of when the second world war was just kicking off too. So at that time, he didn't move to the US because of the war, but I think it was a a bit of a combination of, you know, feeling, um, you know, having lost a lot of family members in France, probably a bit of political turmoil going on. And I think his music was also falling out of a bit of favour in France as well. It wasn't as popular anymore. So um, he thought, you know, a lot of my friends are moving to America, um, Mm -hmm. such as the violinist Dushkin and pianist Nadia Boulanger. So he thought, you know, maybe this is a good signal to move out of Europe and go over to America, which he did. Um, 
And he's the woman that he'd had this long-term affair with went with him and became his second wife um, over there after his wife had passed away too. So that's a bit of, you know, I guess gives you a bit of an idea. He moved um, to the US. Um, he was living in Los Angeles, had a lot of friends who were Russian immigrants um, or other European immigrants, good friends with a bunch of notable people, um, including Aldous Huxley. And they had these kind of, you know, lunches where they would talk and philosophize and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, he was really well known for being quite a, as I said, a hustler and really promoting his music in order to kind of earn enough money to support his lifestyle. Mm. Um, I guess the biggest and probably most well-known um, commercial success that he had was getting the writer's spring included in Fantasia, um, mm. the Disney animated movie, which I'm sure you all know. I think what it's the dinosaur. I don't have it here. I think it was in the 50s. Um, Let me Google. Hold on. Um, So you might recognize 1940. Okay. Quite early. Yeah. Yeah. So the bit in Fantasia where the Rite of Spring comes in is the bit with the dinosaurs, isn't it? I think. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I haven't watched it in quite a while. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Another interesting thing that he did while he was in America was that um, he became friends with George Balanchine, who was a circus guy, apparently. I don't really know much about him. But he asked Stravinsky to compose um, something for him. And he said to Stravinsky, you know, can you can you create a ballet for me? And Stravinsky says, okay, yes, who for? And Balanchine says, for some, some of my elephants. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. And again, like I haven't really fact-checked this properly, but um, according to legend, I guess, Stravinsky's only follow-up question was, how old are they? (laughs) (laughs) So they were young elephants apparently, and Stravinsky was happy to create a ballet for young elephants only. So there Mm. you go. Not sure why. Um, That's great. Yeah. So that's kind of um, Stravinsky. He lived in America for the remainder of his life. Um, He went through a couple of different phases. So when he moved to America, he was in his neoclassical phase. And then after being there for a bit in the 50s, he moved into what's known as his serial phase. Um, One interesting, another interesting thing that happened while he was in America is that he arranged the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, um, to include a dominant seventh chord. (gasps) (laughs) So apparently, and this is a bit of an urban legend. So apparently the Boston police, um, warned him that this is illegal because you're (laughs) apparently not supposed to be able to rearrange the national anthem either in whole or even a part of it. Mm. And they could impose a $100 fine. However, it, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, because the legend, like there's a lot of things, like you see memes and stuff about Stravinsky being held in custody for several days and has his mugshot taken. Right. Um, but apparently that never happened. But it turns out that the police were wrong about the law. So it wasn't that you can't rearrange the piece. The only thing that you can't do with the American National Anthem, I should preface this, this was in 1944, so perhaps the law has changed and you can no longer play dominant seventh chords in it. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Don't go putting dominant seventh chords just in case. (laughs) Um, Things are a bit scary in America right now, so maybe don't go messing um, with dominant seventh chords. But apparently um, the law did forbid using the national anthem as dance music 
as an exit march or as part of a medley. So those were the only three <laughs> things. And I just, I would love to see people just driving to it. So, um, yeah, so he wasn't arrested. It was just a warning and turns out he didn't break the law. Anyway, but that was another funny story. There you go. Um, yeah, so he died in New York in 1971 and is buried in Venice. Ooh. So that's kind of like the brief history of Stravinsky (laughs) but I did there was something that came up while I was researching this and I feel it's really important to talk about and I think it's a good conversation starter for us um and something that's been kind of hanging on my mind a little bit anyway in terms of classical music in general um Mm. given the the recent world events and I mean I say recent but a lot of this shit has been going on for a long time in terms of um you know, extreme racism, um, the Black Lives Matter, oh my gosh, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it's not new, but it certainly has been, um, you know, rising and people are learning a lot more about Mm. it. And, you know, hopefully more progress is being made since the death of George Floyd in America back a couple of months ago. So when I was reading um, about Stravinsky, I came quite a f- came across a few mentions of him having some pretty strong fascist leanings, um, but it does seem to be really ambiguous about what his political beliefs were, whether he was a fascist, whether he was anti-Semitic, and what his actual beliefs were. And there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of people who are um, Stravinsky apologists saying, no, 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 it's fine, it's um, you know, it's just a product of the time, which I don't think is a, a good enough excuse. So I wanted to mm. just acknowledge that. And explain a little bit about what what evidence and what information is out there, um, and then just have a you know a little bit of a look at it. So, and as I said, yeah, I've been thinking about this in terms of my own personal values um, when it comes to racism and colonialism and just basic human rights, and how this intersects with classical music, given that a lot of it is colonial. Um, if we're thinking about cultural appropriation, that's you know a pretty big part of classical mu- or classical with a small c music. Um, and just something that, you know, how that sits within my values and what the structure of the classical music industry means as well. So I think that's something that I'm keen to keep exploring over, you know, future episodes. And I think Mm -hmm. we should acknowledge that we're two white women talking about this and, you know, certainly not the, um, you know, only information source you should be listening to in regards to these things. But Yeah. yeah. So let's have a look at Stravinsky. Let's, um, you know, no one should be exempt from critique. So there's a lot of debate, I guess, about to the the extent in which anti-Semitism is present in his works, both his writing and his musical works. Um, he's definitely known to have been um, a fascist um, or have fascist leanings at times. So before he moved to America, he was, um, quite chummy, I guess, with Mussolini. Mm. So he performed for him on a number of occasions and gave him gifts. And there's a bit of a, you know, I see some people saying, oh, well, he kind of had to at the time. And also it was in the thirties when people didn't know how bad things were going to get. Um, and Stravinsky was also anti-Bolshevik. So he didn't agree with the Russian revolution. Um, and you know, that's a bit of a part in why he left as well. Mm. Um, 
he had a, a student and longtime friend named Robert Kraft who has talked a bit about, um, you know, acknowledging that it's complex and his opinion changed over his lifetime, but he certainly shouldn't be exempt from being criticised. Um, so he, other than the stuff with um, uh, Mussolini, he also refused to sign Otto Klemperer's petition on behalf of musicians who were losing their jobs in the Third Reich in the early 30s in Germany. So, and that was probably due to the fact that a lot of his income was coming from Germany in that time period as well. So it was mm-hmm. probably a bit of self-interestedness. Um, he So this petition was kind of set up because a lot of musicians are being kind of put out of work, particularly because they were Jewish or communist. And um, a lot of musicians were signing these petitions to say, hey, you got to keep our artists working. Um, <laughs> there was a quote from him that said... Um, like first he was saying, I don't want to sign the petition, but he said, um, like, it's, I don't believe in it, but also I don't know where my name will be on that list and I don't want to be put next to such trash as Milhau. So I thought that's a bit... Oh, my gosh. That's a bit rough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I actually thought I read somewhere else that he and Darius Milhau were friends at one point too, so I don't know. Yeah, um, right. But, yeah, it's a, yeah, very rough. Um, also, Diaghilev was known to have um, quite outspoken anti-Semitic views towards some of the dancers and stuff in his troupe, and Stravinsky didn't really seem to bo- be bothered by that. Um, mm. But then at the same time, so Robert Kraft has talked a lot about this and saying, you know, I want to be truthful about this, but he also said that Stravinsky loathed Nazis and kept a book filled with pictures that he'd tr- drawn, drawn of Himmler and Goering in weird poses. <laughs> so I don't know about that. That's an interesting take. And of course you can be anti-Semitic and not be a Nazi as well. Like the two aren't mutually exclusive. Mm. Um, throughout the thirties as well, he did actually perform quite a bit for the Nazi party up until 1939. Um, and he seemed to be quite understanding that they did have a really strong racial ideology at that time as well. So it wasn't like he was just going and being like, oh good, the government wants to give me money, I'll take it. But he seemed to to know about the fact that they were pretty anti-Semitic. Um, I think they he said at one point that, um, like, he was trying to make sure that the um, people that were kind of booking him and stuff in Germany were aware that he had negative attitudes towards communism and Judaism, um, which is, uh, yeah, pretty full on. Like, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a shitty thing to say. And, you know, obviously I think that indicates a lot of his feeling. Mm. Um, But also then he was put on a list of banned composers in Germany um, because he was Russian and he wrote to them saying, hey, I might be Russian, but I'm not a communist and I'm not Jewish and he was taken off the list as well. So, yeah, that kind of gives that a bit. Um, But then later in life, though, he seems to have kind of changed a little bit. So he was friends with um, a number of Jewish musicians, including the violinist Samuel Dushkin um, and composer Arthur Lurie. And he also conducted in Jerusalem in 1962. And I think it might be his one of his final pieces or final works was um, 
a ballad for baritone and orchestra called Abraham and Isaac, and it's set to Hebrew texts and premiered in Jerusalem in 1964 with the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. Hmm. Yeah, um, and he also refused to um, go on a radio station um, that wouldn't, because they wouldn't um, play music by a Jewish composer. Um, but then someone says maybe he just didn't realise that's why and it was just a, a misunderstanding. So it's it's very complicated. And apparently when he was living in America, he was a Democrat voter and his political views softened quite a bit. So mm. it seems to be, yeah, very, very complicated. And I think it's just important to acknowledge that those things exist. Um, I don't think we need to cancel him. <laughs> I mean, he's dead, so... Yeah, you know, you can't cancel a dead person, I guess. But I think it's it's an important conversation for us to to have as musicians. You know, there's a lot of talk about can you separate an uh, the art from the artist a lot of the times. Um, you know, the same comes up when I'm talking about Wagner as well. Mm. Um, and you know, even more recently, you know, I think I think in the past people were quite happy to say no, you can't separate art from the artist. You should just boycott or whatever but then now with um I don't know if you've heard about what's going on with JK Rowling and her comments about being extremely anti-trans um and obviously like loads of people have really strong personal connections with Harry Potter and you know that I think people are reevaluating that like can you separate art from art artists and should you you know is it okay to to still find meaning and joy and pleasure in art without needing to um, you know, without necessarily supporting the views of the artist, can you, you know, separate them? What? How do you navigate that? You know, it's really yeah. hard. And I think so much of what we have learned in the classical world has will have been impacted by the politics and the um, atrocities that have been committed throughout history. So it's, yeah. when, we're not separate from it, but I think... At the same time, like, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer in there either. It's very tricky, yeah, it's, you know. It's definitely. I guess it as well, like, you could look at the individual works and try and understand the, the influence behind their creation. Mm. But then also still a lot of that can be vague and a lot of the time musicologists or, you know, historians will put their own interpretation on it and and, and maybe see something that, wasn't there or believe something that was entirely different so mm, it's just totally it's yeah how much weight can you put in in into that yeah it's, it's an interesting interesting discussion They're very interesting you know and I think it's I think the first step is acknowledging acknowledging it and having those conversations yeah. you know and the more that you know we, we can also acknowledge that the classical industry is set up you know in a way that's really racially segregated and discriminatory and you know, so I think it's it's something that we can continue to think about and and navigate, I guess. But yeah, I yeah. thought it was just important to, to bring this up, particularly in the context of what's going on at the moment in the world and what has always gone on in the yeah. in the world. But you know, our own questioning of of um if you know where where we fit into the picture, I guess. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, that's enough about that. I think we can um, continue to carry on those deep philosophical thoughts and reflections as we go on. Yeah. But for now, let's go back to the art and to the music and have a listen and think about 
what this piece actually is. So if you haven't, do you think, what do you think you want? Should, if people haven't heard the Rite of Spring, should we tell them to pause the podcast and go and listen to it? Yeah, it's, I think you could probably, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll put it a little bit, no, actually, yeah, go and pause and, and go and listen and then come back because this, this piece needs a few listenings, I think. And I, I haven't listened to it like before, obviously this week for a long time, I think since we were at uni and it was sort of brought up briefly in um, musicology class. But I think it was just, it was, I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, and so I think, yeah, go have a listen and then come back. But um, I'll start, before I start, I'll just sort of say as well, I'm, my research predominantly comes from the, um, I've referred again to Maclis and Forney's The Enjoyment of Music. That book's certainly um, <laughs> getting book its money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also take a little from the um, from an online series called Reading the Right, um, which is published by Orchestration Online. Um, and that's also, if you're, if you're really interested in the background and also a study of the score, definitely go and have a read, uh, a watch of those. It's about, I think, 11 parts. Um, oh, cool. What yeah. was the name of it? Uh, Reading the Right, R-I-T-E. Ah, okay, cool. That yeah. sounds, that sounds That's um... what Dan, Dan sort of put me on. Um, I've also looked at the Wikipedia page on the work, of course. Um, I've also drawn from the story behind the right of string from the classic FM guides and I um, read an article written by Betsy Schwarm for Encyclopedia Britannica, The Right of String, Ballet by Stravinsky, which is the last two sort of a bit more of a general general uh, look at the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so The Right of Spring, which is subtitled Scenes of Pagan Russia, was composed from 1911 to 1913 as the score for the ballet of the same name. As Z has mentioned, um, it was the third work that Stravinsky wrote for the empresario Diaghilev, as uh, who was um, the empresario of the Ballet Russes in Paris. Um, so the ballet is actually written in two parts. So part one consists of like a series of rituals in which the community comes together to welcome the spring. They greet each other in challenge and unity. So there's a little bit of um, sort of, I guess, a bit of a, a, a fight against them and then they unite and sort of to revere the power of the earth and pray for its spring um, for its spring forth with fertility. The second part covers the selection of the chosen one from a, a mystic circle of young girls, the evocation of the ancestors um, to witness and sanctify the proceedings and then finally the dancing to the death of the chosen one as a sacrifice to the god of spring. So I quite liked a little bit of a, a quote that Maclis and Formey had written. It's, the plot is vague, the anthropology is dubious, but the visions are effectively theatrical. And I think it's very true. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Well, it's funny because, I mean, that leads nicely into like the whole, where did this concept come from? Yeah, yeah, and that's true. <laughs> the sources are debatable. And even Stravinsky himself contradicts where he got the idea from. So initially in an article that was printed in 1920, he states that the musical ideas came first and then they influenced the pagan setting. But then in his autobiography, which was published in 1936, he writes, and I quote, one day in 1910, when I was finishing the last pages of the Firebird in St. Petersburg, I had a fleeting vision. I saw in my imagination a solemn pagan rite 
sage elders seated in a circle watching a young girl dance herself to death. They were sacrificing her to propitiate the God of spring. Such was the theme of the rite of spring, end quote. So, I mean, I guess that, I, how much weight can you put in an autobiography when someone's had time to think about it and they obviously want to present themselves in the best light as well? Totally. That sounds like <laughs> a very um, thought-out answer, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But then um, there was, there's also an argument from Lawrence Morton who had spent some time studying the origins of the work and he found a link between some of Stravinsky's earlier works, which he based on two, poem from, two poems, from Sergei Gorodetsky's collection, Ya. Now, Morton reckons that Stravinsky would have obviously read the whole collection. Um, and because there's a, there's a poem later in the anthology that's called Yarilla, and apparently it contains many of the basic elements from the Rite of the Spring. Um, now, I found the poem and I've read it, and I'm not, I don't, I mean, I'm not very good at reading poetry. I can't sort of always read between the lines, but I'm going to read it out and I want, I want to see what you think. So oh gosh, wait, so I have to analyze this? You don't have to, but I just want I just want to see if you think there's a link between this poem and the ride of the spring. Okay. Okay. So first to sharpen the axe flint they bent on the green they had gathered unpent. They had gathered beneath the green tent. There were whitens a pale tree trunk naked. There were whitens a pale linden trunk. By the linden tree, by the young linden, by the linden tree, by the young linden. The linden trunk, white and naked. At the fore, shaggy, lean, hoar of head, moves the wizard as old as his runes. He has lived over 2,000 moons, and the axe he inhumed from the far lakes he loomed long ago. It is, at, it is his at the trunk, the first blow. The two priestesses in their tenth spring to the old one they bring. In their eyes, terror lies, like the trunk, their young bodies are bright, their wan white hath she only the tender young linden. One he took, one he led, to the, tr the trunk roughly wed, a white bride. And the axe rose and hissed, and a voice was upraised and then died. Thus the first blow was dealt to the trunk. Others followed him, others appraised, that age-old bloody axe, that keen flint-bladed axe, the flesh once, the tree twice, fiercely cleaving. And the trunk reddened fast, and it took on a face. Lo, his notch is a nose, this an eye for the nonce, the flesh once, the trunk twice, till all reddened the rise and the grass crimson deep, on the sod in the red stains there lies a new god. What is it with friggin' humanity's obsession with sacrificing young girls? <laughs> I know, that was something that I came to my mind whilst reading this. Of course, the girl that has Why to can't we sacrifice grumpy old men? I agree. But, like, I think that the, the link between this poem and, and Stravinsky's work is a bit of a stretch. There may well, be some time, but I think, I don't know. The dancing thing isn't there, obviously. I mean, it's a sacrificial. Yeah, that's mm. it. I but think... Then, sorry, go on. Oh, no, no, you go. But then, I mean, I think the most likely source was... At that time there, I think there was an archaeological discovery of sort of an ancient community in Russia. And um, while they were sort of more well off, the sort of, <laughs> it was turned or twisted in culture to sort of imagine these people as sort of, you know, pagans with you know, certain rituals that they would sacrifice things to gods. And that's, and Nicholas Rerick, who was an artist, but also one of the um, 
sort of foremost Russian experts on folk art and ancient pagan rituals at the time wrote an article on it where he sort of harps back to the origins of creativity in springtime rituals of pagan culture. And this is probably where Stravinsky got his um, his ideas from, more so as well because the two collaborated on the work together and developed the ba basic structure of, of the ballet um, with some musical ideas to support mm. it. So I think that's... Um, that's probably more likely the source but it's just i just found it interesting that there's a bit of um uncertainty around that because it yeah well i mean it's weird isn't it because the dancing part of it reminds me of is it giselle the ballet um, um i haven't seen much ballet so i can't i well i did ballet when i was growing up so i was like a bit of a ballet nerd but it's a i can't remember who composed it but it was a ballet about a girl who, I'm just Googling it, sorry if you can hear the typing. Opera and ballet, Adolf Adam. Don't know. Um, apparently. Um, but yeah, it's a ballet about, I'm just trying to find when it came out, um, about a girl who, I think it's based on an old tale, 1842, I think. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's about a a girl who is like I think it's a troupe of these kind of ghost dancers, and they like if you go out at night, they make you dance till you die, and then she right. um, is in love with a man, and she dies of a broken heart, and then they trap him and make him dance till he dies or something like that. I can't quite remember the plot, but yeah, like that the dancing till you die bit is the thing in that yeah. um, in that in that play or the mm. ballet, I guess. So. I wonder if that was an influence on it as well, because that's yeah. the only time I've heard about the, um, yeah, the the idea of dancing till mm. you die before. Oh, and actually, I'm just having, I'm looking at this um, Wikipedia article on it. Um, Vaslav Najinsky? Najinsky. Is it Najinsky? I think so, yeah. The Polish dancer who was, he was part of the Ballet Russes, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he actually yeah. choreographed. The choreographer, yeah. The yeah, so it's, spring. So it's funny because his relationship yeah. with Stravinsky was not a good one because Stravinsky thought that Nijinsky was a better dancer than choreographer because he couldn't read music and didn't play an instrument. So how could he possibly choreograph something? Has Stravinsky ever tried to dance? <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting. But funnily enough, well, interestingly enough, the Nijinsky's choreography was, I mean, it, it was pretty hard. I mean, if you listen to the music, how the hell would you choreograph something that changes beat all the time? Like you wouldn't even know what, it would be insane. But um, it was running behind schedule in the lead up to the premiere and they were a little bit worried that they wouldn't make it in time, but they eventually got it. And I think by the time it, um, they took it on tour to London, it was sort of, they had mastered it. But Nijinsky's choreography was only used in the fir first eight performances of the work and that includes the, the London tour. Really? And then, it was superseded by new choreography um, created by Leonid Massine, Um and that was what was what everyone used. And Nijinsky's choreography wasn't recreated until 1987 by Joffrey Ballet, which was an American ballet company. And then that sort of prompted prompted companies to present the work with its original choreography. So it'd be really interesting to see um, what I'd love to see the the ballet with the original choreography to sort of see yeah. what it was like. Um, yeah, so then the premiere of this work is also one for the records, as 
you may have come across in <laughs> your research. Um, so the work premiered on May 29th in 1913 at the, the Theatre de Champs-Élysées Champs in Paris. I'm not sure if I'm saying that properly. Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Thank you. My French is very bad. Um, so basically, uh, look, there's a lot of different, basically this premiere was essentially a riot, but there's a few different sort of um, records of, you know, from eyewitnesses and commentators of the, who were there at the night. So the word riot was not actually applied to it until like 10 years later. Um, so the, apparently some people thought, thought that um, the audience were unable to handle the polytonality that Stravinsky had used and were, quote, convinced that what they were hearing constitu constituted a blasphemous attempt to destroy music as an art. <laughs> Imagine, like, being labelled, like, something you do as an attempt to destroy music. I know, right? <laughs> like, that's, that's, like, that's on the level of the crimes against music we were talking about <laughs> a few episodes ago. And there's a, there's a quote from um, Stravinsky that was um, printed in Maclis and Forney, and he basically says... Mild protests against the music could be heard from the very beginning of the performance. Then, when the curtain opened on the group of knock-kneed and long-braided Lolitas, just side note, that's what Howie referred to Nijinsky's dances. Oh, <laughs> yeah. polite. <laughs> yeah, so when the curtain opened on the group of knock-kneed and long-braided Lolitas jumping up and down, the storm broke. Cries of shut up came from behind me. I heard Florence Schmidt, who was a, fl a French composer, shout, be quiet, you bitches of the 16th. And the bitches of the 16th borough were, of course, the most elegant ladies in Paris. The uproar continued, however, and a few minutes later, I left the hall in a rage. I have never again been that angry. The music was so familiar to me. I loved it and I could not understand why people who had not yet heard it wanted to protest in advance. So basically, apparently what some of the sort of um, cacophony that was caused was because um, there were two sort of sections of society there. So there were the sort of the upper class wealthy um, um, members of society who, you know, would go to the ballet and the opera because that was a thing to do. And I guess, um, and then there was a, a sort of more bohemian group who only went to piss off these wealthy people. And they, <laughs> they started sort of attacking each other, but then their mutual anger, anger according to the conductor, Pierre Montu, was diverted towards the orchestra. So everything available, I quote, everything available was tossed in our direction, but we continued to play on, end quote. Um, but apparently, eventually, the unrest sort of receded during the second part and um, Maria Plitz, who was Nijinsky's assistant, um, said that everyone was sort of like watching in silence, in a reasonable amount of silence. <laughs> and by the end, there were several curtain calls for the dancers, for the conductor and the orchestra and for Stravinsky and Nijinsky as well, before the sort of the program continued for the evening. So there are lots of sort of different ideas about who, like why there was such a riot and why sort of, if it was actually the music or if it was actually just these two factions of society coming together and having a go at each other, um, but I think it was probably like if you listen to the music and if you can, um, I guess, imagine being in a society where, especially in Paris, where everything would have sort of been, you know, <laughs> fairly romantic and listen to this where it's just like an onslaught of of everything that anyone's held dear in music before. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you can you could probably imagine how people were just like, what? What is happening? <laughs> um, 
So that was the premiere. It's quite interesting. I mean, and then the next year it was performed as a concert item and um, Stravinsky was sort of carried out on people's shoulders in triumph. So <laughs> Do it's you, interesting. It's, did they not have sport back then? Is this the problem? <laughs> well, yeah, apparently. I'm pretty sure they had sport. Maybe it was different. Just, um, yeah, bizarre. <laughs> so now the orchestration of this work, before we get stuck into some of the music, it was quite epic for its day. So it required an orchestra of 99 musicians, which was more than the theatre had employed at the time. Uh, and they could all barely fit into the orchestra pit as well. So this is the orchestration. These are the instruments of the orchestra. So in your woodwinds, you've got one piccolo, three flutes, one alto flute, four oboes, one English horn, which is a corn glaze, three clarinets in B flat and A, one clarinet in E flat and D, one bass clarinet, four bassoons and one contrabassoon. That's just your woodwinds. Then in your brass, you've got eight French horns, like eight French horns. That's a lot of French That's horns. That's huge. One if you haven't heard a French horn, that's a lot of French horns. Like most standard music, like um, orchestras these days would use four to six. Yeah. Yeah. One trumpet in D, four trumpets in C, three trombones and two bass tubers. Then your percussion, you've got five timpani, which required two players, a bass drum, tam-tam, triangle, tambourine, cymbals, antique cymbals in A flat and B flat, which I didn't get time to look up, and a guiddle, which is the... Um, yeah, uh, it's like the, the fish you, thing. Yeah, yeah the fish thing. Yeah. Where you, yeah. <laughs> Looks like a fish. Yeah. You've got your standard strings, violins, violas, cellos and double basses. But the strings were sort of written in a way where they used pizzicato and successive downbow strokes um, sort of to reflect that percussive na nature of the work. So they were even being asked to play in a different, in different style. So obviously, as you would expect, a few issues kind of arose in the orchestration at the first orchestral rehearsals. The horns were inaudible in passages, which I think is hilarious because there were eight of them. Um, <laughs> I know. <yeah. laughs> a flute solo was drowned out by the brass and strings and there was issues around balance among some of the instruments in the brass section during Fortissimo episodes. So also what I thought was hilarious was musicians would point out what they believe to be wrong notes in the score often <laughs> enough that the conductor, Pierre Monchu, got so fed up with them and told them that he, to shut up and that he would be the one to pick up any mistakes. Also, <laughs> as a side note, Monchu hated this work and he never grew to like it, even though he conducted it many times throughout his career. So that's like the epitome of professionalism. Um, <laughs> these divas who refused to play things. No, but he, he really, he just, I think he just didn't understand didn't understand it and it would have been so hard being the conductor of a new work like that trying to figure it out yeah I can't even imagine like it would just be insane mm. so Stravinsky made the amendments um, for the premiere but he also kept making changes to the score for the next 30 years and he and then when it sort of became more of a concert piece he um, adjusted the instrumentation as well for that so as we've sort of hinted to this work pretty much throughout the western music composition rule book um as Stravinsky presented his audiences with new musical language that used different tonalities, different meters, different rhythms, different stresses of the um, rhythm and a dissonance all in a different way. And when you listen to it, you can understand why people maybe lost their shit a little. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I want to isolate that, <laughs> you saying that and use that like at the start of the episode as a preview. <laughs> You can understand why people maybe lost their shit a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of the melodic passages are in the work are modelled after folk songs, which I think 
ties back to that sort of idea of Russian music and that nationalistic approach. Mm, totally, yeah. But and I like the opening bassoon line, which opens the whole work, um, is actually from a Lithuanian folk song. And there's also a lot of repetition of the melodic sequences, which is a style common to the folk song genre. But um, Stravinsky actually denies um, using or, you know, being influenced by them. It's quite interesting. A lot of people have made connections between Russian folk songs and, and that, but he was always sort of pretty adamant that he wasn't. And I wonder if that was because he was worried that people would think that he, he wasn't original enough or, you know. But yeah, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a whole idea of appropriation or from other uh, composers, or you know, um, people being accused of plagiarism. Um, and so it's just, I think, if you admit to it, then maybe it devalues your work or what you hope people to look at, see your work as. Yeah. Um, he also uses a gamut of harmonies using whole tone and octatonic or eight tone scales. He uses polytonality. Um, so like two, two turn tonalities at once um, to create this wonderfully dissonant sound. Can you explain to that for listeners who aren't yeah, so got an musicians? Example. Oh, good. Oh, cool. 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 Yeah. So for, for that sort of polytonality, I think the procession of the wise elders in the dance of earth, are really good examples if you listen to that because you can kind of it just sort of jars a little but it also makes sense like it's just doesn't quite sit right it's like your feelings in your teeth moving when you touch them stereo. is it is it like <laughs> if you've got like one hand on the piano playing c major and another one playing yeah. like f sharp major yeah yeah so the introduction of part two the sacrifice has the flutes and clarinets alternating between d sharp minor and c sharp minor over over a sustained d minor chord which is played in the horns and the oboes so here's a short clip that we've prepared um, of just the flute and the clarinet lines. Um, and they're playing the first two bars of the introduction. Have a listen. Now these chords suggest perhaps a deep Phrygian tonality for all of those who love their different modes. Uh, which is a pretty dark tonality, um, if you're familiar with it. But have a listen to how the bitonality sounds even darker or sort of more otherworldly when it's laid with a sustained D minor um, in the horns and the oboes. Take a listen to this. I'll add this little point here as well that the, this this um, section, the introduction of part two, the sacrifice, is actually for all you Star Wars fans. This was used as a temp track to score um, one of the scenes in Star Wars when it was being edited. So I believe before in what what happens when um, films are being used is that during the um, editing stages or filming stages, they'll use a temp track that they'll take from like some music or something classical music. And I'll use that there because the the um, composer the, the, for the the, um, the film score isn't actually brought until much later in the process. But sometimes, and what will often is happen is that the filmmakers will become quite wedded to the temp score, yeah. and so the composer needs to um, needs to make something very similar to that. And this is what happened here. So you you listen to it. There's actually um, a really good link where there's the, the comparison of the two. I'll, um, we'll make sure that we put it up in our notes for the episode. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's almost the same. It's just the tempo slightly slower, but I think the key the key is actually the same. Um, and so John Williams, you know, may have been accused of being of plagiarizing, but he's actually probably didn't have much of a choice based on what the filmmakers wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's so funny um, listening to certain film scores and hearing, um, yeah, like known classical pieces a lot. Um, mm. Hans Zimmer is obviously one that's extremely yeah, influenced. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's interesting actually because Dan R. Sandman has been composing for a video game and he'll often get sent a score from something else and be told, like, this is what we want you to make something along these lines. And I'm just like, it must be so hard for a composer to just be like, yeah, write me this, but not that. Like, yeah, you know, definitely. It, it's it's very um difficult job to do. I don't think non-musicians really get how hard that is to kind yeah. of like rip something off without ripping it off. You know? Yeah, totally. You know? It's totally. tricky. It's very difficult, but that's pretty cool. So another important element of this work is the way Stravinsky uses rhythm and meter and also how he'll suddenly interrupt the pulse with a change in accents or a randomly placed downbeat. <laughs> <laughs> so the glorification of the chosen one in the second part of the work is a great example of this. It opens with 11 um, sort of pounding beats and then it goes into a 5-8 where the rhythm, the accents, sorry, are on beats two and four, which is unusual I think with 5-8 it's mostly on beats 1 and 3 or 1 and 4 depending on the um, rhythm you want to get um, and so and even then once you sort of still getting you just sort of start to settle in with that rhythm it changes again and it just keeps keeps like really it's really unsettling it just keeps um changing on you but I think with a lot of these pieces as well you can sort of sense that there's a clear structure in terms of the form and so the ritual action of the ancestors, for example, which is the penultimate movement of the work. Um, it has like an arch, like A, B, C, B, A form. And so it's just, for those who don't know, it's just like A has got sort of one melodic line, B will move into another one, C will move into another one, and then back to the melodic line of B and then back to the melodic line of A. And for me in this scene and looking at sort of the overall the picture of the work, I feel like this, this form here, it's like, it paints a picture of a ritual action being introduced in the A and B sections. And then section C is like the ritual sort of happening. And then the B and A section is also almost like the ritual is being packed down and then they're preparing for the dance, the um, chosen one's dance to a death. So you could have a listen to it. It might take you a couple of times. So section A, you can hear the structure in the music through the orchestration of melodies. So you've got the alto flute and the English horn playing the melody in, in that section. Then the muted trumpets take over with the alto flute in the back, background in the section B. And then section C sits in between two um, fortissimo triple F horn sections. You, won't, you will not miss them. And then it reintroduces the first and second section, first and um, sec second section. Um, and then of you know of of B, and then you've got um, section A again with alto flute and English horn. Um, my only qualm with this work is that it and the 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 ending is pretty disappointing for something that is epic in everything. It's it's pretty measly. I think Stravinsky could have tried a little bit harder, and apparently he did really struggle with the ending and never quite um, never quite got something that he was happy with. But look, it's an epic work. 
you can you'll listen to it and sort of really hear why people just couldn't understand it and it was so different but it's also an amazing amazing um um piece of work so i hope you i hope you like it and if you are interested have a read of the wikipedia page on it because it's got a good overview of everything uh, and for those that are interested more in the the musical element of it check out the um reading the right because i think that will give you a really good he analyzes the score quite in in quite a bit of depth so yeah so that is the right of spring yay oh my gosh <laughs> so now that you've um heard us talk about it pause the podcast again and go listen to it again yeah and that should take you up to the end of the day because yeah. <laughs> this, this episode is starting it's already like 90 minutes long. yeah look um compared to other pieces it only goes mm. for about 35 minutes and it moves quite quickly so mm. listen to it a couple of times over a couple of days it's and you really start to sort of hear the all you know that dissonance should that, we be encouraging people well particularly i'm thinking of our local listeners local to us in lockdown to listen to a pagan ritual piece on repeat while they're in lockdown we might we might end up with a bunch of um yeah, you know people like trying to start up some pagan sacrifices and okay no. well listen to it and just don't don't sort of fall into that trap just, monitor your mental health yeah i think that's what we're trying to say um well, I think it, that brings us to the end of I think yeah the the analyzing Straminsky yeah <laughs> should we do we have time to do a scale oh we always have to have time to do a scale <laughs> yeah. I feel like we should do a polytonality scale well what if we both do one at once but we'll do a different scale at the same time so like you play I don't know something and I'll play something well, and then also you... because we're on zoom it's probably not gonna work no it probably won't I wonder whether we should put this together in post. Yeah, well, we could try that. <laughs> we could do you playing C sharp minor and me playing D sharp minor. Okay, sounds good. I like C sharp minor. That's one of my favorite keys. I have to figure out what D sharp minor is. <laughs> it's E flat minor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, yeah, let's do that. Okay, yeah, we'll probably have to do it in post because we can't play simultaneously on Zoom. But yeah, okay. Mm. Oh, well, should we do our theme music for it at least though? Yeah, which All one right. are we going with? I don't know. That's oh, our theme music is polytonal. <laughs> it's polythematic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, let's go. Let's see what comes out. One, two, three, four. Scale of the <laughs> It's oh, um. Like always. <laughs> oh my gosh! Definitely polytonal and polythematic and polyrhythmic <laughs> and poly everything. Poly, it's just poly. <laughs> So if you think you can do better and play two <laughs> at once without with the one person rather than two, please. In a socially distanced context, might I add. <laughs> then just send us in a recording. Uh, and also, if you want to send us recordings of anything you've been working on or anything interesting you may have come across about the right of spring, then please do. Um, you can get in touch with us on our socials. Uh, I used to play piano on both Facebook and Instagram. And our email address, I used to play podcast at gmail.com. 
That's us. Yeah, so send us through. Like, I'd love to see if anyone wants a recording of this. I'm clearly not doing any music at the moment. Joanna's working on some stuff, but not me. If you'd like to hear some live music on the podcast that's not just us butchering scales, you can um, email us or get in touch on our social media and we can arrange for you. We can even have you on for an interview. Who knows? It'd be great. Yes, we're very lonely right now. Please reach out. (laughs) All right, guys. Until next time, it's been fun. Yeah, have a musical month or however long it is until you hear from us again. (laughs) Bye. Bye.